Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's the founder of Han Cuckoo Spirits, author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. It's Christopher Pellegrini. How are you doing today, Christopher? Thank you very much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Um, I'm from Bristol, Vermont in the Northeastern United States, born and raised. And I was involved in all sorts of uh, just a normal kid growing up in the hills, uh, sports, everything. And I ended up getting into alcohol at a pretty young age. (laughs) Um, I think we'll just cut straight to the chase. I was a very young home brewer. I started home brewing when I was in my early teens and Yes, this was a secret. Yes, it was illicit. Yes, I'm sure um, I shouldn't have been doing it, but I believe the statute of limitations has lapsed on that, so I should be all right. Um, And I took a really keen interest in craft artisanal uh, beer, for starters. And one thing led to another, and I really got more and more into it. It was kind of a rabbit hole. My parents found out about my home brewing operation, were not very impressed, shut me down in a heartbeat. But I took my experience and my passion to the local home, uh, not homebrewery, microbrewery called Otter Creek, which is in Middlebury, Vermont. And I finagled my way into an apprenticeship of sorts uh, or a paid apprenticeship. And I was basically just learning all aspects of the brewery. I really wanted to be brewing, but I was still like, I was pretty young. How old was I? I was probably like 17 years old, maybe almost eight. Yeah, 17 years old at the time, I think. And and then one fateful week at the brewery, our lead brewer wrecked his back and couldn't haul bags of 50 pound bags of grains around the brewery anymore and then the same week and this was just the worst thing that could ever happen to the brewery but our second brewer left the state to join the circus oh as sometimes (laughs) happens and so we were without anybody who could make the beer and when the ceo came in and asked we had an all hands on deck meeting and asked hey does anybody in here know how to make beer and little, you know, 17 year old me is like, and, and I remember that the reaction was not positive. The CEO was like the kid. And, (laughs) and uh, our cellar master was like, you know, if he, if he doesn't drink it, he's legally allowed to make it. And that's how I became the youngest commercial brewer in the United States uh, back at the back when I was still in high school. And um, I was immensely proud of my, work i was the most annoying underage beer snob you've ever met in your life and i and i just and i continued to really um develop that passion for the types of drinks that people will line up with growlers you know on the weekend to fill up before they go hiking or whatever and i was really really happy with what i was doing and even though i had the night shift which i didn't love all that much because uh a dark, a, like a lights off brewery with only one person in it. That I believe that's a setting for a horror film. If it hasn't yeah. been made yet, it should because there's some weird sounds happening in that space at night, creaking and and you know little percussive explosions and steam 
letting off all the time. It's not a fun place to be at night. I'll, I'll just take my word for it. Um, but that was, I guess that's the, that's, those are the roots, I suppose, um, which would go on to inform much of the rest of my life uh, to this day, even. And yeah, I miss Vermont. For someone that gets into home brewing and craft beer and those kind of things, at a young age, it's definitely a unique palette that you're having for that kind of product. How does someone get involved or interest at the age you were? Were you exposed to it and experienced it at home? Were your parents drinking it and you just were amazed by the process, things like that? How did that happen? That's a that's a great question, Alex. I, um, Well... I guess at the risk of making my parents sound highly irresponsible, they were not. They were two of the most upstanding people you've ever you, you've ever met in your life. But my parents, both educators, had a lot of dinner parties mm-hmm. for family, for uh, my mother's church group, for their colleagues at the high school, junior high school, stroke senior high school. And so we always had people over and my mother just was, she tended to be in the kitchen. My father tended to be flying all over the place. And my job from when I was in elementary school, and this started probably even before elementary school was to go around, take drink orders and make the drinks. And we had a, we had what's called a, what my parents called a dry sink. It was this beautiful antique place that where all the booze was kept. It was like a a home bar. And I would crack cans of beers and rip open wine coolers and pour simple cocktails, two ingredient cocktails for people. And I would just keep people top topped up for the night. And I was kind of the, the morale officer of sorts, just making sure everybody had what they needed. And I thought I didn't think it was really anything special, but I started to learn a lot about alcohol through that. I started to learn the way people like their drinks. And I, I learned what made a drink too bitter and what made a drink too sweet. And, and my, <laughs> my, my mother's mother, granny always loved bourbon and water. And my, my grandfather used to be so used to get so jealous because my grandmother would only drink the bourbon and the bourbon that I made for her uh, that would, and he, she wouldn't drink, drink it if, if he, he made it. Cause he said, Oh no, when you make it, it's too weak uh bourbon and water so that it was just it was fun you know and then so that was that was kind of just getting used to using alcohol almost on a weekly basis or at least a bi-monthly basis and then getting into high school just just before I started down this path of home brewing and my parents weren't really beer drinkers I guess that's something I should say my mother loved a little bit of bourbon my father didn't really drink at all to be honest with you. And my mother was not a, not a drinker. She, she was just a, she was a social drinker, but that was it. And she'd have a drink or two over six hours. And so it was hosting. And then it was in high school in a history class. uh, I was working in a, in a group project. And part of the project is everybody was given a decade in American history. And we had to create a newspaper that was emblematic of the times that had it had advertising that was from that decade and that had major stories that we had to write ourselves we had to do the research and learn about what was happening at the time and we had the 1920s 
And of course, in American history in the 20s, one really big thing that was happening domestically was prohibition. Yeah. I mean, right at, you know, January 1920, boom. Um, you know, there's an amendment and, and, uh, all alcohol is illegal, right? So there was a lot written about that. There was a lot written about the process of, of, uh, prohibiting alcohol. And then there was all of the bootlegging stories and the mob and everything. It was, it was, we were, we were at the library. We were going through microfiche. You know, you've got all these newspapers that are put onto film from, at that time it was like geez that was back in the 90s so we're talking 75 years prior and we're just reading through geez this was a it was a mad time back then and everybody was making hooch at home so we're like huh you can make alcohol at home we should and so then all of a sudden hit pause on the prohibition research go straight into home brewing research we're like how do you do that (laughs) and so we started researching that and and then that naturally led to what was big in the 90s, which was homebrewing. That was the homebrewing boom had started before that and was in very healthy shape in the 90s. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, this is me and my really close friend, Jesse. And we're like, we should probably do this. And and we started and we we got we cobbled together a brewing kit. And every every Sunday when my parents went to church, we we had control of the kitchen and um, <laughs> and uh, we made a batch. And and that's where it, that's how I got into it. And it became more and more enjoyable as we figured out how to keep everything immaculately clean. And in, increase our odds of getting a decent batch out of it. And we, you know, fine tuned our recipes and. We were working all malt extract at the beginning, basically the really beginner's way. And then we started mixing in other grains and we started dry hopping and we started, we started kegging and yeah. And that, I mean, it was just, it was so much fun to figure out how to do it right. And it took a long time. We did it for a couple, we had, this was a couple year project that we were doing and, uh, and we kind of. And we made a little bit of a name for ourselves locally in terms of the guys who could make good beer. Um, and then one day my parents found out and the whole thing went to kaput. <laughs> but hey, that's how I got into it. But it definitely shows that you found you did somehow school brought this passion of yours to light and you were able to experience a lot more and you kind of fell in love with it. And now if you look at your career past that, it has been your career and it's not just a job. It's a fun project, a passion of yours that you continue to do today. That's right. Yeah, it it informed a lot of my decisions, even though I didn't get directly into alcohol after I left the brewery. I got into education just like my parents and education took me back to my former where I graduated high school and I taught there for a while. And then I switched venues entirely. I moved to Korea and uh, before Korea was Spain, then Korea was working in Korea, then ended up in Japan where I am to this day, 20 years later. And that's where I fell face first down another rabbit hole which is related to japanese spirits and that was a that became a quick hobby which became a passion which became a career um and now i've switched almost completely from education into the beverage alcohol industry and and primarily trade 
education is still a big part of it though, because that's, that's basically my role is to brainwash people. (laughs) (laughs) Did your parents not all, were not all for the idea of moving abroad in a way, or they were like, you need to go do what you love to do or what you want to do. And they were all supportive in that decision. Both. Um, primarily from the start my parents were very like you you need to do what gets you out of bed in the morning and whatever we're going to be supportive of that as long as you're not breaking any laws anymore Um, (laughs) (laughs) and so they were they were supportive um and they they were fine with me moving overseas my parents actually met while they were both teaching overseas at a private school in England. And so there was that, there was that, that travel gene somewhere in my DNA. And I think there did come a point, however, where my parents were like, okay, that's enough. You can come home now. (laughs) Uh, Which, but uh, which I'm sure there's still a little bit, there's a residual um, amount of that left in the, in the system, but they've also, come to terms with the fact that I do have a a home and a life over here in Tokyo, Japan. And I've been here for 20 years now. It was two years in Korea before that and a year in Spain before that. So uh, yeah, I mean, I've spent way more time uh, outside of the States than I ever did in my hometown. So it's, uh, it's a weird one, but yeah, my parents, I overall, and even to this day are extremely supportive of everything and without them, I wouldn't, obviously wouldn't be where I am today. We'll talk about Japan later in the interview, but you mentioned Korea and Spain. Is there memorable moments you had while living in those um, areas? I lived in Seville, Sevilla in Southern Spain for a year of studying Spanish ostensibly, allegedly. And (laughs) I was, it was a good lesson in life. I spent a lot of time trying to make money because I was an idiot and I showed up in the country for a year with not nearly enough in savings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on a student visa, you're not supposed to be working. So it wasn't easy to figure it out. But um, I guess that's a story for another day. But I guess the the Spanish experience was a, a, a time when I really learned who I was and who I was not. Um, because it wasn't, it, it's not very easy to fake when you're when you're speaking a, another language and you're, you know, you're trying to make ends meet and there's just too much going on. You just kind of have to be yourself and, and, you know, get your head down. So I, I learned, I grew up a lot during that year, I think is a, is safe to say. I went from a very safe undergrad experience to a kind of, well, shoot, if I don't, cobble together enough money i'm gonna get kicked out of this apartment type of existence so or much less have anything to eat so mm-hmm. it was a, it was it was a good kind of wake up time for me uh south korea was was uh far more stable because i had a uh, i had i was gainfully employed in the education system and i was learning very quickly America had had sort of soured me on education a little bit because half of the my time in the classroom in a in a junior high school senior high school environment was just pure discipline and trying to it was like herding cats cats in a bag and it was not very enjoyable and not well paid 
and um and I didn't feel like I was I was reaching anybody really and and then transitioning to a a social environment where teachers are just automatically more respected and you have more time and more bandwidth to kind of reach people in the way that you want to you you want them to learn or you want you, you want them to develop uh so that was a that was great just because i didn't abandon what i could tell was a was also a very important thing to education was very important to me i could tell i could tell that i had some amount of competence in education and and teaching in america almost drove that out of me so i'm glad that i kind of just hit the reset button and left the country um because i don't know if i would have done it otherwise so korea was good for that and it was also really important because i i met my my wife there and she it was her idea to move to japan i wasn't on my radar at all but she did not like her job she was in finance and and she said hey why don't we just move to to japan for a year i've always wanted to live there and we'll see if our relationship continues to go well and it's like hey sounds good to me and 20 years later we're married and we're still here you know so you talked about taking that risk and even when you were changing towns that you were living in you're taking a risk because you're going to from spanish speaking to korean speaking and now japanese speaking you're is making those risks something that's in your blood where it's not going to stop you from accomplishing what you want to do I never thought about it that way. I didn't really think of it as a huge risk. I thought of it as being I thought of it as being um time consuming, energy consuming. I saw it as as not knowing what the outcome would be. So I guess that was a risk. I I tended to plan just for being trying to be successful successful over a year or two and then reassess from there. So I was very I was very ready to hit the reset button again if necessary, but I was also determined to see something through to the end. So I didn't bail on anything, which I'm kind of proud of, even though, yes, times were occasionally tough. But the it was certainly a challenge, I, no doubt about it. I mean, they're moving to, I purposefully chose a part of Korea where I could tell there just weren't that many out-of-towners and I was going to be kind of, I was th- going to throw myself into the deep end, which I find to be hilarious. <laughs> I just, it's, I think it's a great exercise in, in learning who you are. Yeah. And then by the time I moved to, to Japan, so it was my third experience learning a new language, being in a, a totally new environment. I was kind of getting used to it a little bit because I just had learn to accept the things that I can't change and accept the things that I don't understand and to just observe, adjust and get on with it. And I think that was very, very helpful. I was basically, I had learned how to deal with culture shock. And of course, yeah, you, everybody deals with culture shock every time they move to a neighboring town or they join a new company or they join a, a new soccer team. There's a culture there that you have to adjust to and I got a lot better at shortchanging the progression, which is very much like this. It's not linear. 
mm-hmm. um, of just like the day to day stuff that makes you depressed or frustrates you. And it makes you act in ways that just are not part of your normal character. And I learned to recognize those moments and say, okay, why am I feeling this way? Something's obviously pissing me off. Probably not for a good reason. I need to just take a step back. I need to go with the flow and tomorrow's going to be another day. And I think that's, well, now I've been here for 20, 20 years. And I think maybe if I had started in Japan as my first, my first outside of Vermont, outside of America experience, I might not have lasted 20 years. I might have lasted one. And then I would have been like, all right, this is, this is too much for me. I'm going to, I'm going to restart somewhere else, probably back in the States. Um, So I think the progression was good and learned a lot about myself along the way. I know I've said that a few times, but it's, it's, it is important to figure out who you are and who you are not. And that can be done through challenging experiences. That's for, for damn sure. Well, even that same concept, people even utilize in job, in the job world where they think, oh, I'm going to be here forever. And they just get used to the same thing. And then there's some instant that makes them realize I can do better. I can do something different. I can adapt. And I always feel that having that culture shock and even for me changing jobs, I needed that because I needed to showcase what I can offer. Because if a job's not going to let me show them what I can and they're kind of restricting me, that's not the right spot. So you mentioned that maybe the going to those Spain and Korea were the best decisions because you gained so much knowledge. You learned a lot about yourself. So now where you are in Japan, you become a better version of yourself and you'll be able to handle anything that you face. I I believe so. I think it's a, it's a sum of all of those experiences and, and without them being there, then I, I just wouldn't have the tools to kind of deal with the things that are in front of me right now. For people that are listening, they may not see Christopher's background with a bunch of bottles in his background. Talk <laughs> about the creation of your spirits company. How did the name come about? And what was the big moment that got wanted you to start that? So uh, I'll, I get to I get to Japan. This is back in 2002. And I and I knew about sake, S-A-K-E, just a quick primer on pronouncing Japanese mm-hmm. words. And I think everybody will enjoy this. The nice thing about Japanese, Japanese, uh, I will say, is a very difficult language to learn for a native English speaker. Mm -hmm. Things that are easy about it, I guess, is the pronunciation. Believe it or not. Why? Because there are only five vowel sounds. They have an A, E, I, O, U. Easy, right? We have those. Now, the nice thing about the vowels here, which make it easier than than speaking English is that there's only one way to pronounce each of those vowel sounds, unlike English, where there's a bunch of different, yeah. <laughs> a bunch of different pronunciations depending on the other letters that surround the vowel. In, in Japanese, when you see a Japanese word, just imagine that you're reading the word in Spanish or Italian. So A is always pronounced A. E is always pronounced E. I is E. O is O and U is U. If you can just remember those five vowel sounds and when you see them in a Japanese word, you're, you're 99% of the way there. Also, don't, don't stress any individual syllable. Japanese is a very 
kind of even language. They there's no real stress in the sentence, really, unless you're angry about something and then you stress <laughs> lots of weird stuff. So the the common word that everybody knows, um, S A K E, which is often called the national drink of Japan, it's one of them. A lot of people pronounce it sake, but yeah. Just given what I said about the pronunciation, we already know that that's wrong, right? S-A-K-E, pronounce it like Spanish, sake, right? So I'm going to talk about sake. When I first got to Japan, I started studying. Studying means sipping, uh, drinking sake. <laughs> My experience with sake was very poor in the States in the 90s. It was, um, it's a brewed beverage and people in the States often didn't know how to deal with it they would open the bottle and leave it on a shelf it's a it's a it's a brewed beverage like like beer and wine you leave it on the shelf it's going to go off so i drank a lot of terrible sake in the states and i came here and was very pleasantly surprised that it's actually an amazing drink and there's a even though it's all made from rice there's a ton of diversity in the sector and i was loving it i was really pleased to enjoy it a few times a week and then one fateful day, uh, a bartender at, who must have been bored pushed one of the, the country's indigenous spirits in front of me. Now, I'm an, a couple of other words that and these are the ones that have really taken over my life. Shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U, shochu, just pronounce it like the verbs show and chew. Show me how you chew your food. Like you would say to a little kid, <laughs> hopefully not somebody older. Um, show, show to, and then show to slightly older cousin, awamori, A-W-A-M-O-R-I, awamori, awamori. Those, these are Japan's indigenous spirits and shocker of all shockers, they outsell sake in Japan. Spirits that outsell a brewed beverage is crazy, right? Can you imagine like, like, vodka outselling beer in the states i mean people drink yeah. a lot of vodka but no that doesn't make any sense at all right you could beers are lower lower alcohol percentage you're just naturally going to drink more of it by volume so anyways these spirits outsell sake in japan and have every year since right around when i arrived so i arrived in 2002 from 2003 2004 that's when shochu and awamori sales pipped sake sales domestically so it was the boom times and i was fascinated because these spirits can be made from 53 approved ingredients wow so it's the most diverse spirits class in the world and one interesting thing about this spirits class is that they're all single pot distilled now anybody who knows about spirits will know a little bit about how a still works if you paid attention in chemistry class you might also remember that a still is used to purify liquids. Um, and so if you put beer in a still, you have something that can be made into whiskey. If you put wine in a still, you've got brandy. All right. If you put fermentations with these approved ingredients in a still in Japan, you have probably shochu, as long as it's single pot distilled and no additives. Now, single pot distillation is really rare. It's rare for two reasons. Number one, the alcohol percentage doesn't go up very high, which is not great because you can't <laughs> sell, sell it for very much money. And number two, it's really hard to make. 
Um, you, you have to have a beautiful fermentation because if there are any off notes in the fermentation, they will show up in the, in the distillate, in the spirit. That's why usually double fermentation, triple, three times through a, a still is more common because you get an increasingly higher alcohol percentage and you get fewer weird notes in the spirit. So shochu, the indigenous spirits of Japan, the goal is the opposite. Lower alcohol percentages, but more character, more aroma, and more flavor from the ingredients that were used to make the spirit. And that for me was just so craft beer, I couldn't get over it. I, I was so, I was so smitten. I was in deep smit. I was so fascinated by these spirits that were everywhere in Japan. I had never heard of them before. And they, this was just a gigantic industry hiding in plain sight that the rest of the world had never heard of. 2002, 2003. So there's Wikipedia might have existed, but there was no shochu page. That's for sure. And so nobody could tell me anything about these drinks. I was just, I was just like, what the hell is going on? How, how, how can this be every, every supermarket, every convenience store, every restaurant and bar has shochu on the menu? I'd never heard of it, right? And so I wanted to know where I could learn more about it. Nobody could tell me anything. I'm like, where do they make it? They're like, well, it's down down south, down in, in Kyushu and in Okinawa. I was like, can I, I didn't even know the geography of Japan at the time. Can I take a train there? And they're like, yeah, you could take forever. You want to fly probably. So I did. And that's, I guess this is probably something that may be coming out about me here on the on this podcast is that if i'm curious about something I, and i i just kind of go and figure it out and that's kind of what happened with craft beer when i was in high school um it happened with languages it happened with with pretty much everything and it happened again with these drinks i was really interested in them nobody could tell me anything about them so i said fine i'll go find out myself and i flew straight down there i spoke no japanese at the time too it was kind of embarrassing <laughs> and I just knocked on distillery doors and said, Hey, can I see? And they would say, no, go away. And, uh, <laughs> it was kind of that way for a while. And eventually I, I caught some people at the right time. And also when you're in these small mountain towns where the distilleries are, word gets around pretty quick that there's a weirdo at the, at the local pub who's really interested in learning more about the drink. Word travels fast. And so often my reputation would precede me to some of my, my gorilla distillery visits. And they'd be like, Oh yeah, you're the, you're the weirdo from the pub, aren't you? Oh yeah. We heard you're, you're harmless. So, okay. You can come in, just don't touch anything. And so eventually people started to allow, allow me in and they would start to explain. And I, I would say, listen, I, I did this. I worked on a brewery floor. I get it. I respect it. It's hard backbreaking work. I love it. Just tell me how it works. And I was, I was floored by the differences in fermentation. That was just, I mean, they didn't have a mash ton. There was no lauder ton. It's like, how do you work with these ingredients if you don't have a, there's no boil. There's no hot side to this process. How does that work? And that's probably a discussion for another episode, but <laughs> it's just a totally different fermentation culture. And it's, it's part and parcel with Japanese cuisine. I mean, you, it's all Japanese fermentation is related 
for these drinks, for sake, for shochu, for everything, for miso, for soy sauce, meeting. It's a fascinating culinary culture. And I was just kind of starting to scratch the surface of it. And that was that was the beginning for me, going down there, meeting people, making friends, getting some hands-on experience with the drinks and learning how intertwined with the local culture these drinks are. I mean, it's Kyushu Island, which is southwestern Japan. There's seven prefectures, seven states on this island. And the southernmost state called Kagoshima is a little bit smaller geographically than Connecticut. It's it's just a little it, it's very comparable in size. So you have a space the size of Con- Connecticut, 110, 112 active distilleries. Wow. I know. It's nuts. So I was just I it was the most amazing thing to me that it was just it's literally hiding there in plain sight. And yet it's totally taken for granted. It's just a normal part of everyday life in Japan. And incidentally, the, the word sake in Japanese means alcohol. It's it, 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 so shochu is, is sake as well. And if you go down to Kagoshima prefecture and you say, Hey, give me some sake, they'll give you shochu. Now, this eventually led all of these experiences compounded over decades led to me writing a book about the shochu handbook because I wanted to reach a wider audiences, a wider audience. I wanted to teach people about it. And then that eventually led to me being um, anointed or, or I don't know what you would call it. I became a, an official ambassador per the Japanese government for these drinks. And they flew me around the world to, to brainwash people and do classes and tastings and that sort of thing. And, and I was, I was really enjoying it as you can probably imagine. Uh, but it, but the progress was so slow in terms of the uptake of these drinks internationally. I saw so many opportunities for shochu to become an established category, a, the type of spirit that should just be on every back bar. I mean, it's such a huge industry too. If you think about the the pure volume, I mean, in 2019, before the before the pandemic started, you there was more. There was more shochu and awamori made in Japan than tequila in Mexico. Wow. And yet two-thirds of tequila is exported. Most of that export going to the States. The States is, is Mexico's biggest trade partner on, on tequila and mezcal. So 65-66% of tequila leaves Mexico. Less than one-tenth of one percent of shochu and awamori ever leaves Japan. It's just, it's Japan's best kept secret. And so I was really tired of going overseas and again, you know, going to France, going to America, going to Hong Kong, going all over the world and saying, hey guys, I know everybody knows sake. Yes, that's Japan's drink. But actually this is another national drink of Japan that outsells sake in Japan. Everybody drinks it. Everybody knows it. And you guys, I'm here again to bring the news to you again. This is not sticky. I don't know why it's not working. So I got tired. I got frustrated. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, March of 2020, I just, I just quit my job. And then with some other really, really motivated people started an import company in New York called Honkaku Spirits, H-O-N-K-A-K-U, Honkaku. And Honkaku in Japanese means authentic. Um, and what we were trying to do was 
It's not very complicated. We were just basically taking drinks that spirits that we really love, the stu- kind of stuff behind me that I drink at home and bring them to audiences around the world, prim- starting in the United States. Now, obviously, these are pretty complicated spirits. So they're not really for vodka drinkers necessarily. I think we're looking more at people who really like their whiskey, people who like their mezcal, people who like a drink with a lot of complexity. I think people who are hoppy beer drinkers would get into it. Um, You have to kind of want something more complex in your beer. People who really like to, you know, people who, I don't know what they're called, gourmets, people who really like good food and will, you know, like to cook and those sorts of things. I think we're kind of looking at that section of the world for starters. And it's just, like I've said a couple of times, it's a rabbit hole. This is the mo- one of the most fascinating drinks categories on the planet, whether we're talking spirits or otherwise. And there's, there's so much to get excited about in terms of uh, what could be coming to the rest of the world. Looking at your journey, when you were a kid, you started the alcohol business, the microbrewery at home. Is it crazy to think that it's come a full circle where you kind of started that, you went into education, and now you're full circling back into the alcohol business? I Yeah, I did not see that coming. That's for sure. I always had the goal, I still have the goal to someday open a, a brew pub where I get to make the beer and host people and and uh, people going to have a good time at, at a place, at some place somewhere in the world. And I think that could still happen. But the great thing about Honkaku Spirits is that I've been able to to blend my love of of craft drinks with my my genetic predisposition to education mm-hmm. and bring those together in a way that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. And so I, I spend and get out of bed at night too. I mean, I spend all day, every day, just on zooms with people, um, distribution teams, uh, liquor store staffs, um, just bringing them through the paces of, and this is the great thing about the pandemic taught us that this is an okay way to communicate. Yeah, which I'm very grateful for, um, because let me tell you what in March of 2020, I did not envision that yeah. it, we would still be in this state in 2022. So nothing went to plan. It's been a a real ride, let me tell you, a real character building experience. I guess we can say, you know, you quit your full time job and start something new. You start a company, and uh, and then all of a sudden. You know, everything goes pear shaped and it was, yeah, it's been, it's been wild. And I know there's a lot of people who started businesses during the pandemic. So this is not a unique story at all, but uh, we've all had to find our own path. And that's been, that's been real. (laughs) (laughs) Just listening to you here, talk about like craft items and stuff. I'm from Missouri. And so domestic beers, Anheuser-Busch, those traditional um items is just like oh yeah just give me that and 
it's hard for me to get into the craft beer and stuff, but I feel like it's something for people that are listening that's never experienced. It's something you just have to go and try because it tests your palate and kind of gives you a different feel of what's being made out there. So mm-hmm. for you, someone that's listening that has never experienced a craft item or something different, what would you tell them to go out there and try? How would you get them to have that confidence to be different and try it, expand the horizon in a way? One thing that's really great about shochu and awamori is that they're made for their, the culture here in Japan is a, is a drinking and eating at the same time, just as we think of wine culture, but this is a spirit. So it's, a, it's kind of, it's interesting. They, they will with food be drinking this at the same time. So the nice thing about shochu is that it's, it's unbelievably flexible with food. There's so mm-hmm. many pairing options and that can be really nice. Yeah. It's also unlike wine because it's a spirit. There's no, there's no real acidity involved. So, the spirit won't clash with the food. You won't have any fighting with the food. That's really nice too, because there are very few bad pairings. I've actually never experienced one. I don't think, <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, I guess what I would say is for shochu. Yes, there absolutely are lower barriers to entry. And, and with that in mind, I would say if you go to a restaurant or a bar that has Japanese shochu. Don't get it confused with Korean soju. They're completely different drinks. Um, Japanese shochu. I would say you start with either a rice shochu or a barley shochu. Those tend to be really, really recognizable flavors and aromas. Rice shochu is going to remind you a little bit of sake, mm-hmm. if you've had that before. Um, you'll get some of the light tropical notes, a little bit of banana, a little bit of melon, maybe some bubble gum and cotton candy. And, and then it'll be drier though, because there's no residual sugars. Uh, they've been cooked out during the distillation process. And those drinks are often going to be great on the rocks. Uh, maybe even with a little bit of, of seltzer added for something resembling a highball. And they're going to be pretty crushable. Um, barley shochu, on the other hand, tends to be, especially with what's available in the States right now, tends to be quite light, a little bit fruity, has a nice kind of soft nuttiness or graininess, graininess to it, a little bit of a breadiness. Those are also great on the rocks. Sometimes you can dilute them a little bit with a little bit of water as well, just to bring the ABV down lightly. Um, and I, I think they're really easy drinks for people to understand barley, especially because we're America's a beer and whiskey culture. So it makes a lot of sense to people. So those are very easy on ramps. And then once you get into it more and more and that, and let me tell you, this is, this is not something you can get your head around in a weekend. There are 5,000 brands of shoju and awabori made in Japan every year. If you ever hear somebody refer to these drinks as Japanese vodka, you have my permission to rake their shins repeatedly. <laughs> they do not, they, they, no respect for that type of, that is, that's rude. Um, so these, this is a really, really diverse spirits class. I mean, the most popular ingredient used to make shochu in Japan by sales is sweet potatoes. Sweet potato shochu is is the the big seller. 
barley's number two, rice is number three. But then, as I said before, there's 53 base ingredients approved by the tax office. And that includes some weirdos like aloe, aloe <laughs> shochu, um, water chestnuts. Uh, what else? Carrots. There's carrot shochu. There's milk oh, shochu. Uh, and then, and tea, green tea shochu and kelp shochu. There's a, there's a couple different types of seaweed that can be used. It is wild. And because of single pot distillation, these drinks all taste like what they're made from. So that's something that's really cool. I mean, what does, what does whiskey taste like? Does whiskey taste like, is there an ingredient called whiskey? No, there's not. It's made from grains. It tastes like the barrel though. The, mm-hmm. the flavor in whiskey is from wood. So that's a very, very different type of spirit. These spirits are general, are clear and they taste like what they're made from. So it's really, really cool. Um, and I, and once you get into it, like there's no turning back. And once you get more and more into it, then you gravitate towards the more complex styles. And sweet potato is certainly one of the more complex styles, but it's the best seller in Japan because it's all, it's, it's so much fun and there's so much to savor. And that's what I'm really excited about for the U.S. market. U.S. consumers are, are incredibly open to new things, which I really respect much more so than many other parts of the world that I've traveled to. Um, there's there's a there's a fascination with new there's a fascination with with uh authenticity as well which is also helpful and there's a there's a curiosity that's just out there very easy easy to it's very easy to scratch that itch you mm-hmm. know and so I, it's really enjoyable to go to the states which I do all the time I was there in for the whole month of April and part of May I'll be back in September and I go around to accounts and just teach and pour and, and uh, get people happy and hopefully put some nuggets of information in their brains that they will remember the next day and continue to ask questions about the category. And, and hopefully that leads to something big. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, both personally and professionally? I, I hope my, my overriding goal is to help make shochu and awamori a worldwide spirits category, just like gin and bourbon and mezcal and, and rum. I want, I want everybody at home to know or have heard of shochu, even if they haven't tried it and know that it's made in Japan primarily. If, if that happens, I, I know that I will have been successful in everything, I, everything that's, that we've talked about today, everything that led me to where I am right now. I, it was all, mm-hmm. it was all for a good reason. Now that, that's going to take time. That's several, yep. that's several more decades probably, but I'm prepared to, to, to see it through to the end. Um, and, and personally, uh, on a personal level, I I think if if uh, if I can mix in more family time, both my my family in the states and my wife's family in in South Korea, if if I can make sure that to increase the amount of time spent with them, then that would be 
a serious success. The last couple of years have been a little rough, as you can probably imagine yeah. for for Trans Pacific and and travel and even going back to Korea has not been hard, even though it's a two hour only a two hour flight from here. Um, yeah, so those those are a couple of the things that I guess I have my my eyes on. I'm very fortunate professionally to be surrounded by some uh, equally passionate people who um keep me humble and and who I learn from all the time and who are just great teammates and friends so that's it, it's while things have been incredibly rocky trying to get this business off the ground during the pandemic when nothing is working correctly and everything takes five times as long as it should yeah it's been, it's been it's it's going it's moving and uh hopefully if we have a follow up uh interview in a in a few years time I'll st- Honkaku Spirits will still be kicking and we'll have uh reached new markets and made some new fans. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I think it's important for people to stop waiting for for people to give them permission to to do something that they're really passionate about. I, and and that includes stop waiting for yourself to give your yeah. to give yourself permission. I mean, oftentimes it's just getting out of our own way. And yes, we're all strapped for time. There's there are relationships and children and jobs and and family responsibilities and and community responsibilities and other things and it's hard yep i totally get it but you sometimes just need to open the window throw your cell phone out the window close the window so that you can <laughs> give your give yourself a little bit more time to just do to learn more about that that thing that you're curious about and and take it to uh, you know one step higher uh i I think that it, it really just, you just follow what you're interested in and, and take it to the nth degree. And many times it's just, if it's possible, then you do it right now. Obviously you need money to do things. So don't make any super rash decisions. Sometimes these, these processes can't just happen overnight, but if you just stick to it, anything's, anything is possible. That's for damn sure. Um, Another thing that I believe I've I've demonstrated during this this chat today is that it's really important. I think it's really beneficial to stay curious. Just if if you if you are interested in something, there's there's no reason to be happy with the explanation you received. Just go figure it out for yourself. Um yeah. because there's there's so much to discover, there's so much fun to be had and you know, I, I, uh, you know, there was a time when I was in college and I remember walking through the woods and, and I, I remember looking at all these beautiful old growth trees. And I remember being kind of disappointed that I didn't know what any of them really were. I mean, I knew what a maple tree looked like, but I didn't know what all these other trees were. And I felt like that was a deficit in my understanding of the natural world. So I was just like, well, I should, figure this out and i was inspired by my grandfather to my my mother's father who was 
very he was a bird watcher he knew everything about everything and he could tell me what all of these and i was like i should have some of that um and so i i just thought about it and i read about it and i walked in the woods more and i learned about the patterns in the bark and and looked at the leaves and everything so that that's the kind of thing that i think it just adds enjoyment to life yeah. so stay curious stay curious just just um don't don't allow yourself to don't accept anything. Just learn more. And uh yeah, and 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 the third thing is don't don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt what you can do. I mean, I if you had asked me, hey, if or if somebody had said, Hey, do, why don't you why don't you um in the space of three years, why don't you move to two foreign countries and learn two two foreign languages, um, places in the world that you've never been before and may not need to stay for very long? Cool. And I would have been as a teenager, I've been like, why? And <laughs> and and uh, and that's a fair response. But at the same time, if the question had been, hey, do you do you think you can do that? I hope that my answer would have been, yeah, I believe I, I can handle that. But I don't think that's how I would have answered as a teenager. I yeah. would have said, no, I don't. I mean, I'm having a hard time with Spanish. I don't know why I could re replicate that process quickly twice over the space of three years. But that was that's the wrong attitude. Um, just believing that it is possible, understanding that it is going to be hard, but accepting that it's a process. And that if you stick with the process, it, then anything is possible. So it, it is a lot about self-belief. It is a lot about not self self-reliance too, I suppose. It's not, it's just doing it, doing it on your own. Um, I, I, which is not to imply that I would, I did everything on my own. I would not be here without my parents. I would mm -hmm. not be here without my friends, my wife, my business partners, all the other people that I learned, bounced ideas off of, learned from, reacted to, was inspired by, none of that would have been, none of what I'm doing right now would be possible um, without any of that. So I'm incredibly grateful. But I think also I needed to add a whole lot of my own curiosity, independent self-belief, stubbornness, and learning from my mistakes whew, every damn day um, in order to kind of get on the path that I'm on. And I'm nowhere near my goals yet, but I'm on, I'm on the way, I hope. And, and, you know, with a little, with a, a few lucky bounces, which I, I, I feel like I'm due after the last couple of years, um, you know, things could start to move a little more quickly. Well, Christopher, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate it. This has been a blast. And to everybody out there who's listening, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai from Tokyo, Japan. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.